Hi, everyone. Welcome to Agile Precision, a podcast by BMWi Ventures, where we talk to a variety of interesting people, a lot of them in the BMWi Ventures portfolio, as well as other luminaries in technology in and outside Silicon Valley that impacts the real world. I'm your host, Greg Smithies, and today I'm talking with Rob McGuinness, who is the founder and CEO of Prometheus Fuels. They're doing some truly science fiction stuff where they're creating carbon neutral gasoline at scale profitably from carbon dioxide. We're extremely excited to talk with them today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so just as an intro to the audience here, would love to hear a little bit about Prometheus Fuels and uh, what you guys do. Yeah, so what we do is remove carbon dioxide from the air and use solar and wind electricity to turn it into gasoline and jet fuel that are carbon neutral. So when you burn them, they don't contribute CO2 to the atmosphere, so they don't add to global warming. That is truly revolutionary. But you don't necessarily have a background that uh, is straight down the fairway here on uh, you know, oil and gas. So maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up starting this company. Yeah, actually, I'm an entrepreneur. My training being a PhD in environmental engineering. I started out in uh, desalination of seawater, water purification, air purification. So in that way, trying to solve this kind of problem, climate change, is right up my alley. But it takes me into a field that has been based on oil exploration and transport and refining and so on. And I think it's just time to change how we make transportation fuels and how we um, handle transportation so that they don't damage our climate. Yeah. So I completely agree with this. I think this is one of the key things that we as a society need to be working on. But you do kind of hear a lot of pushback that electrification is the only answer or is the best answer that we should be going after. So I'd love your thoughts here on, you know, why isn't electrification enough? You know, obviously, BMW, we're putting a lot of resources into building electric cars. There are the Teslas of the world. I think all of the large car OEMs are spending billions of dollars on electrification. But why is that just not enough? Well, electrification of the transportation fleet is a great thing to do, and and we are fully in support of that. I myself have an electric car and an internal combustion engine car. They're both useful in their own context. But the main problem is that there are over a billion cars and trucks on the road today that burn liquid transportation fuels. And there isn't enough time to replace that entire fleet of cars and trucks with electric versions before we emit so much CO2 in the process of making that transformation that we've already exceeded limits like two degrees Celsius in, in warming. Whereas, you know, we may 50 years or 100 years from now have replaced every single fuel burning car or truck with an electric one, but we need to solve this climate change problem faster than that. And so the, the really fastest way to solve that problem is to replace the fuel. So all the cars and trucks are the same, all the airplanes and all the long haul trucks and all the shipping fleet are all the same, but we change the fuel. And we don't have to change the fuel infrastructure because we're making gasoline, which is molecularly identical to gasoline from oil. It's just made a new way and has different consequences, good consequences. So we can use the same tanks and the same gas pumps and the same pipelines and everything for it. It's just the fastest way to solve the problem. And then electrification, maybe hydrogen fueled cars, things like that can kind of catch up and people can choose them if they prefer them, but it won't be too late to solve the problem for climate change. Yeah, got it. Let me though keep my sort of skeptics uh, devil's advocate had on here. I think when I originally spoke to you, I'd been looking at this space pretty in depth for a while and had spoken to lots of companies. And there just didn't seem to be anybody on the horizon who was going to be able to do this at scale and truly profitably, you know, truly cost competitive with oil. So what happened that that changed this for you? And, and why is it that you can do this uh, profitably, whereas people have been working on this, frankly, since the 50s or 60s, and no one else has really cracked the code? 
Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the ability to technically make synthetic fuel, you know, which is carbon neutral, has been with us for almost 100 years. Um, it, the, the problems have been twofold. One is a technology problem, which relates to cost. And the other one has been sort of a market problem. So on the technology side, a number of things have changed. It used to be if you wanted to make synthetic fuel, you had to do a bunch of really kind of brute force 20th century chemical engineering process steps, right? You had to electrolyze water and make hydrogen. And then you had to separately capture CO2 into a pure gas. And then you had to like mix those things in a reactor to form a syncrude and many, many, many more steps. And it's just way too expensive. And so the only way to kind of do that sort of thing would be to have like a billion dollar pilot plant to get anywhere close to price parity. And that's been really difficult on the second dimension, which is the opportunity. No one really thought that made a lot of sense. So some things have sort of changed in both those dimensions. One is that, um, you know, fundamentally what we're doing is turning electricity into fuel, right? So our main feedstock is electricity. And one of the big things has changed over the last, say, five to 10 years is that electricity from solar and wind has gotten way less expensive. We just got really much better at making it. You know, now you can get electricity from solar for less than two cents a kilowatt hour. And so the less expensive that electricity becomes, then the more feasible it becomes to turn it into a fuel if you have the rest of the pieces of the puzzle. So right now, electricity from solar and wind, very inexpensive, check. The other problem is that there wasn't a really great way to turn that into fuels without having pretty expensive equipment. And what we've innovated at Prometheus is figuring out a way to use very inexpensive equipment to do that job. And in, what we do is we actually do all the chemistry, it's electrochemistry, in water at room temperature, which is very inexpensive, right? So you can use PVC piping and you can use just like regular rubber gaskets and things like that. You don't have to use high pressure stainless or titanium or something. And so for a number of reasons, we can go into length if you want to, we can make a pretty inexpensive machine that, that then takes pretty inexpensive electricity in terms of the fuel. So that's on the technology side. It just got cheaper to do it because of some innovations from us and because of evolution in the sort of the electricity generation renewable market. The other side is the opportunity, which is to say that before you had widespread acceptance of the public that climate change was a problem to be solved, it, it was, and in many places still is, a market externality. There's no price for it. And so, you know, it, it, you can draw a parallel to sort of plant-based meat, right? If nobody cared about the impacts of meat, what, what reason would you have to switch from a burger made from, from, from meat to a burger made from something like pea protein, right? Once you have that demand for the product, which is equivalent, but better in this dimension, of like it doesn't harm the environment, then all of a sudden you've changed the market dynamics. And that's, that became true, especially I think in 2018, people just really seemed to sort of snap into focus on all the things were happening around climate change. I don't know if it was the, all the big storms or, or just the fact that it just sort of reached a threshold. I think mainly it was because the International Panel on Climate Change said, hey, you know, we're talking about 10 years here, not 50. And I think that really snapped into focus. And then the second part of the, of the opportunity is that people were willing to fund this now. And it, it used to be that that wasn't true. But once investors saw that there was market demand, that, you know, the impact wasn't external to the market anymore, and that the feedstocks, like the electricity was cheap, all of a sudden, you know, the, the forward thinking investors started saying, this makes sense to me too. And all those things kind of came together, like I'd say in the last year. And so, you know, our timing is really great there for all those things to produce cheap fuel. That's what's new. Got it. The other pushback that I that I do hear relatively often is, uh, hey, plants capture CO2 and use sun in order to uh, create biomass and we turn biomass into ethanol. And that can be used as fuel. So how is this different? Why isn't bioethanol or biodiesel just the answer here? And you guys are kind of like a, a moot point. 
there's two reasons why those aren't able to solve the problem. I mean, you know, they're good within their own constraints. If you have an excess of an agricultural product in your market, you can make fuel and you can essentially make that trade, you know, financially. But there isn't enough arable land to scale it to the problem. And we don't want to have food and fuel competing with one another. That's one of the criticisms. In the United States, we actually use 40% of the corn we grow for bioethanol. And I wish it was more carbon friendly than it than it is. You know, there's all sorts of debates over how much carbon the soil, you know, absorbs versus emits and whatnot. But the carbon intensity assigned to those fuels is, is only about 80% of the carbon intensity of, of, of gasoline. So you only save like 20% of the carbon emissions. So the fact that they're not as they're not they're not zero carbon, right? They're not even like half unless you go to cellulosic or something. So th- they don't really solve the problem and they can't scale. And so that's an argument for why they're just not really equivalent. You can't get uh, $2 trillion worth of gasoline a year out of agricultural feedstocks in a way that doesn't have terrible consequences for other things like food. So then looking to maybe the environment um, from a more political backing here, uh, what is it that you'd like to see in terms of the rest of the ecosystem coming together and things that can be more tailwinds, um, things like policies that are going to help us get to carbon neutral um, and allow Prometheus to, to really do well? This is another place where you know our timing is great because a lot of places have already thought this through and have already created an environment where we are supported. So in California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, they banded together to form a unified essentially carbon market. So there's a low carbon fuel standard credit that uh, helps us to be price competitive as we start out in the early days when we don't have any economies of scale, right? And you could find similar prices on carbon in other markets like Europe. Anywhere there's a price on carbon, anywhere they've said, hey, that's not external to the market, that we're actually polluting and there's real damage and it has real dollar signs attached to it. Those are places where we are already supported. And by the time we you know, saturate the demand for uh, fuel in those states, we already will have the kind of economies of scale to go and compete anywhere, with the very rare exceptions where people have, say, subsidized fuel markets uh, in petro economies. So you know, th- we can really already have the support we need. I think the place where we still need to look from a policy perspective is in the tremendous rollout in, in solar and wind power we need to do this, right? So if we want to replace all the gasoline in the United States, for example, uh, we need to put in about another one and a half terawatt hours of electricity. And so that's not a big deal technically. And there's certainly no problem with resource. I mean, we're talking about like the Dakotas and West Texas and like Nevada, Arizona, Southern California, like there's tons of solar, lots of wind up of the Northern Plains. The problem is project finance. So if you go to a place out that's remote and you know it's too far to economically connect to like a major city that would have a guaranteed demand for like say grid electricity, you essentially have to say, well, this this plant is for fuel, and that fuel is coming from a new technology, and so there's a technology risk. People who build solar and wind plants are not kind of used to taking on that technology risk because solar and wind are proven, and so what you need is like loan guarantees or some mechanism to address the risk in building out the solar and the wind you need to make fuels. Now, by the time we actually get to building gigawatt plants in North Dakota, I think we will have already proven out the tech, but it it is a place where there's no solution. But if I just think of like uh, where you are in terms of uh, compared to another industry that also went through this hurdle, right? You know, 20 years ago, going and getting financing to build a solar farm or a wind farm was relatively difficult as well. And that has rapidly gotten easier. So where do you think you are in the sort of life cycle here? How how high is that mountain that you think you need to climb in order to get the policies, the regulations, and the sort of financing people to all be marching to the same tune? I think we can get through most of the early proof points, you know, using basic market dynamics and using our own capital. So 
if we go out and we say, hey, we want a one megawatt or a 10 megawatt solar farm and we're willing to just buy it, there's not going to be a problem there. And then once we're using that and showing that we turn that into fuel, let's say you do that for some number of years, you might be able to say, okay, I'll sell bonds on this or I'll maybe, um, do some sort of yield co, right? The same sort of mechanisms people tried to use for solar and wind once they were proven to generate. So once we're generating fuel, we'll be able to go down the same kind of solution curves that, that solar and wind did. And because people care about this issue so much, because I think there's so much capital available to solve the problem of climate change, particularly with regard to transportation, like how are you going to replace jet fuel? right? People don't know how to do that. I think we do. And, and so those things can come together into a well-resourced effort. And then, and then once you get far enough along where we've done the first, you know, five or 10 plants and they've worked for a couple of years, then I think it's going to get much, much easier. Well then, okay. Look into your crystal ball and, and roll us forward here. Um, what does the future look like for you guys? Say when, when are we going to be able to go and buy some Prometheus fuel at the pump? So we're going to be selling gasoline that zero net carbon, contribution to the atmosphere. So renewable gasoline, true renewable gasoline, carbon intensity of close to or below zero within the next year. And we'll start to ramp up that capacity. That's going to be in California. And then we'll start to expand to this, which cities we serve in California. And then, you know, we're going to say, wow, the demand for this fuel is so great that we need to partner. And then we'll be looking for people who want to build these machines and operate them also to try and accelerate, you know, market penetration as fast as possible. If I had to choose between sort of maximizing the profit per sale versus maximize the speed with which we replace fossil fuels, I'll choose replace fossil fuels as fast as possible every time. So I foresee a future where this technology through us and through maybe our competitors, maybe through partners, replaces fossil fuels quickly. How quickly will really depend on a lot of factors that are hard to foresee. You know, it's hard to foresee the events of this last year, but I, I think the, the economics are with us. We can compete on price and we can actually push the price of fuel down. And, you know, as long as it remains a free market, I think we can we can succeed at it. Yeah, that's that's incredibly encouraging. I mean, as someone who uh, uh, I I do lose quite a lot of sleep over uh, the climate crisis, and I have therefore been investing behind this uh, for a while now. I do think that there's an opportunity here. There is hope for us to be able to uh, sort of save the planet through technologies like this. And and I really love. Um, I think it's on your LinkedIn profile that that you make science fiction reality. <laughs> I think I think we are right at that cusp here. I went over the course of the last uh, five or six months since we first met from an extremely strong skeptic on this to really believing that this is one of the requisite pathways that we as humanity need in order to actually save ourselves. So I'm, I'm personally very bullish on, on this, obviously, and I'm sure that our audience will be too. So where can they go to maybe find out a little bit more about you guys and maybe share with, uh, with the audience some other places where you'd like to go to find out about climate positive technologies? Well, they can find us on our website, which is prometheusfuels.com or our Instagram or our other social media sites are also under Prometheus Fuels. You know, places you can read on this, there's obviously a bunch of great blogs. I guess the main thing is that we're going to be trying to present people with a brand that they can connect with and trust where they can actually go to our gas station, get our gasoline, know how it's made. Because I think trust is really important in this. It's really hard to know if you buy like a carbon credit, like, is that a forest somewhere? Do I, what do I know about it? Right. But if you see a fuel making plant connected to nothing but a solar farm, you can have a lot of, a lot of trust. And I think this could really accelerate. And, you know, just to give you a, a parallel from history before we close out, you know, we used to make fertilizer for food by mining fur droppings on islands. And that was like a huge industry. Uh, people made a fortune a lot of, and a lot of people were miserable doing it, you know, but then in the 1920s, uh, we figured out how to actually get all that nitrogen from just the air, you know, so we started air mining 
in the 1920s. And now a third of our population essentially is dependent on that technology for food. And all the predictions of famine were essentially uh, largely addressed by that technology. So it's not just going to be fuel we can make. Once you start mining the air for carbon, pretty much anything you make with oil could then be made this way. So we can also start to remove CO2 from the air and make things like building materials and and durable goods and things like that, where we sequester the CO2 in those products and all of it being based on free market and profit and demand and supply. And, you know, so not requiring higher taxes or anything like that. I think there's a lot of reason for optimism that we're at the beginning of a new technology with new opportunities to solve this problem. It's really great to to have some optimism around this. And uh, frankly, it couldn't come soon enough. Uh, so I'm very glad that you're working on the problem. Yeah, so thank you very much, Rob, for, for joining in. Um, this is a great conversation, and, and thanks uh, to our audience for, for tuning in. We will be back a week or two's time with our next episode. And in the meantime, you can check out more information about uh, the BMW iVentures portfolio at bmwiventures.com. And you can find out more about Rob and Prometheus Fuels at prometheusfuels.com. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.